Section 5 of Tin Horns and Calico by Henry Christman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 5 Justice for Sale. Another election day came, and the Democrats moved back to Albany. The new governor was William C. Bouck, a genial farmer from Fultonham, Schoharie County, who had made a host of friends as canal commissioner, riding his white horse up and down the Erie. His popularity was enough to elect him, despite a split in his own party. The rift had occurred over state financial policies, the faction known as the Barnburners favoring a pay-as-you-go policy, and the Hunkers a continuation of the policy of pledging the state's credit and resources to the extension and completion of the canal system. There is no very convincing explanation of the origin of the name Hunker, though some said they were after a hunk of spoils. The barn burners were probably so called because of the old Dutchman who burned his barn to get rid of the rats, inasmuch as they were willing to scrap internal improvements in order to cut down the payroll. Paradoxically, the hunkers were known as the conservative faction, though they advocated a liberal spending policy, and the barn burners were radicals because they argued for radical reductions, in short, a conservative spending policy. As was only natural for a former canal commissioner, William C. Boak leaned towards the hunkers, but his political mentor was Martin Van Buren, whose son, John, was a rabid barn burner. Politically, as well as personally, Boak was moderate and amiable, the ideal compromise candidate to unite the hunkers and the radicals, he had the added advantage of being a farmer, sprung from farmers, who had lived close to the evils of the leasehold system in the upper Schoharie Valley. During the conferences that filled the month between elections and the end of the term, William H. Seward found his successor simple, kind, honest, and sagacious, a man of homespun rural manners, lacking neither dignity nor grace. But then Seward was always companionable, and Book could relax with him, as though he were not a political opponent. On state occasions, the new governor became stiff and reserved, without any of the elegance that most people expected of the executive of a wealthy state. When he moved to the capital on January 1, 1843, his friends made him bring his best span of white horses— so that he would not, as he phrased it, degrade the high office. He was willing to bring the horses, but when he found that the coachman was supposed to wait while the governor attended church, he promptly sent the team back to the fly. Thereafter he walked. Then Mrs. Boak dismissed the chief cook, and insisted on doing the cooking as she had always done at the farm. "'I feel better now,' Boak said. "'I can discharge my duties better.' and when my term of office expires and I return to private life, I shall feel that when I was governor I did not set an example for extravagance in any respect that might be the means of ruining anyone. In the first year of Book's governorship, the tenant farmers were busy holding meetings, distributing copies of their statement of grievances, and organizing for their first test of his sympathies and influence. True to the pact with De Vere, Dr. Boughton and some of the others were stressing the identity of the free soil and anti-rent movements wherever they went. But the Irishman was left stranded in the city without any means of carrying out his part of the bargain. 
He was not a man to be suppressed for any length of time, however. Early in the spring of 1843, he was back among the farmers, handing out a broadside he had printed in his Williamsburg shop. Citizen Farmers, I have been shut out from the privilege of communicating with you for a period of many months, and I take this means of informing you that I have, within that time, made repeated attempts to obtain a hearing through the columns of the Advocate, but without effect. Your paper is, in fact and reality, under the censorship of your enemies. On one side, Mr. Gallup is threatened with fine and imprisonment if he publishes anything which may give offense to ears polite. And on the other hand, Mr. Gallup has been, as I understand, threatened with the loss of legal patronage. I do not pretend to judge what portion of this influence was directed against my humble productions. It is enough for me to know that they were first altered to suit the taste of the censors, and afterward shut out altogether. You will, I presume, perceive that a paper so controlled can be of very little service to your cause." Of your will and ability to disenthrall yourselves, I entertain no doubt. Your recent organization proves that the spirit of 76 still lives among your mountain fields. You have, I am persuaded, little of either difficulty or danger to encounter. There is a very slender barrier between you and the full realization of your wishes, more slender than your lords and their legal advisers are thoroughly aware of but still you will have to act with both judgment and energy, or else, slender as is that barrier, you will never be able to surmount it. As a preliminary, and I think an indispensable step toward commencing operations, you ought to have a weekly paper established in Albany, devoted wholly and fearlessly to your cause. Under the management of a competent editor, who would write and publish whatever in his judgment would advance the truth, regardless of what the patroon and his mercenaries might think about it, and willing to meet them any day they choose and test the liberty of the press before a jury of American citizens. With due encouragement on your part, I would undertake to conduct such a paper, provided you could not secure the service of a more fitting and competent hand. The fact that I am thoroughly acquainted with the printing business would guarantee economy in our establishment, and the additional fact that I conducted a press in England for several years, which drove into the very teeth of the government and its crown lawyers, gives pretty strong assurance that the patroon lawyers will not make much profit by attempting to persecute me. At all events, I am willing to adventure the risk. I submit these matters for your consideration. I feel much satisfied that I am again permitted to communicate with you, even in this makeshift way, Believe me to be your brother in the holiest cause that ever pen or sword of mortal ever lost or gained. The farmers read the handbell, and took de Vere's advice up to a point. They abandoned the sinking advocate, and launched the guardian of the soil. But Thomas de Vere was not called in as its editor. His friends on the Helderbergs persuaded him that to accept the post would be to invite suppression of the paper by the enemy. De Vere gave in gracefully, insisting that he had no desire to leave Williamsburg beyond the wish to become more extensively useful. He was willing to bide his time, in the conviction that the future would bring closer collaboration from the cautious farmers. 
Meanwhile, from his headquarters at 99 Reed Street, New York City, he began to build up an organization to agitate for free farms. By the end of the year, the farmers felt confident that their appeal could no longer be ignored. Down with the rent banners were flinging their challenge from the Berkshires to Schoharie County. On January 1, 1844, Dr. Smith A. Boughton rode down from Alps and crossed the Hudson to the capital, carrying with him the fruits of many months' work, petitions to the legislature, signed by thousands of anti-renters, it was an impressive set of documents. But unfortunately, the landlords were prepared. Boughton reported afterward, It was a desperate struggle. We had the whole aristocracy of the state to contend with, immense wealth and powerful political influences. In both branches of the legislature, the cry of the majority was, Your ancestors made a fair covenant, and now you, their descendants, want to break from it and obtain your lands for nothing. This I had to contend with by explaining to the members the deception practiced on the tenants when they received their leases. The lobbies were filled with landlord lawyers contradicting me. On January 19th, Dr. Boughton won a critical victory when the Assembly, by a majority of 22 votes, sent the petitions to a select committee made up of members from Rensselaerwick, some elected by the farmers, and consequently sensitive to tenant opinion. Samuel Stevens, the Van Rensselaer lawyer, begged that the petitions be referred directly to the Judiciary Committee, of which he and two other landlord lawyers were members, though with revealing lack of logic he refused to serve with the Select Committee on the ground that he might be supposed to have a bias on the question. Dr. Boughton was asked to supply legal opinions supporting his contention that the legislature had the power to interfere with the tenures. He secured an opinion from Ira Harris, a young Albany lawyer with a progressive reputation, and then went to Boston to talk with Daniel Webster. That elderly statesman, with the mouth like a mastiff, a brow like a mountain, and eyes like burning anthracite, had not forgotten the way he had persuaded old Stephen III to elect President Adams, and he also had dealings with the lords of Livingston Manor when he wrested the Hudson River steam navigation from them and returned it to the people. If I had time, Webster roared, I would tear that manor into shoestrings. He sent the doctor to New York to see his friend Ambrose L. Jordan, who had a brilliant courtroom presence and a skill in cross-examination that had won him the sobriquet of aqua fortis, literally strong water, the name by which alchemists denoted nitric acid. When Boughton returned to Albany with encouragement from the great Webster and supporting opinions from Harris and Jordan, Stephen IV was so alarmed that he tried vainly to get the petitions away from the select committee. Boughton parried the best blows of the aristocracy. Although he had been told contemptuously that horse-dealers might as well look for legislation as anti-renters, the committee returned a sweeping indictment of the leasehold system. Like the report of the previous select committee in 1840, this one stressed the mental and moral effects of such anti-Republican restrictions upon free men. It pointed out also that although the leasehold counties were especially adapted to manufacturing, 
having abundant water power and unsurpassed facilities for disposing of manufactured articles, yet the leases prohibited the tenants from using the water power, even should it remain unoccupied for a hundred years. The committee proposed a three-point program of relief. Taxation of the landlords, a court test of the patroon's title, and in the event that title was established, state exercise of the right of eminent domain to force the sale of the land at a price to be fixed by appraisers appointed by the legislature. Struck by surprise, the House cited the decision of the 1842 Judiciary Committee that the state constitution barred any such changes. Stephen IV, supported by his friends, sent his agents swarming to the capital. Samuel Stevens worked feverishly. Suddenly, the report was scuttled, without ever reaching the floor for a discussion. For the second time, the Judiciary Committee took charge. After conferring frequently with Stephen Van Rensselaer, it made its own report, which the anti-renters suspected had been written by one of the patroon's lawyers. Samuel Stevens gave support to this suspicion, when he explained in an angry reply to accusers that his name was placed on the report without his consent. An anti-renter retorted dryly, I do not wish to charge our legislature with being susceptible to bribery by the hard earnings of the tenants passing through their landlord's hands, and I protest against any of the members putting such a coat on unless they anticipate an exact fit. The Judiciary Committee, like its 1842 prototype, took refuge in the state constitution, waving aside all warnings of civil war. It referred the farmers to Van Rensselaer, who had assured the committee that his tenants could have all the relief to which they were entitled directly from him. The committee deplored the fact that the tenants had been told their lot was hard when it was well known that the state could not relieve them, but its members did not feel that the tenants should be depressed, as actually they were suffering no injustice. The degradation and the hardship were imaginary. If we admit there is a wrong done, not to many, but even to one, and that the remedy for that wrong was within our constitutional power, we are bound to find and apply a remedy. The legal minds of the committee could find constitutional objections, real or fancied, to all but one of the select committee's proposals. That one issue, taxation of the reservations held by the landlord, which, if passed, would tend to drive the landlord to seek better investments, could not be disposed of so easily, because the legislature's power of taxation was unassailable. On this point, the constitutional experts resorted to a strategy of delay, they asked the Comptroller to report to the next legislature on the desirability of such taxation, hoping that the respite would give the landlord time to force a peace on his own terms, with the unfavorable report as his principal lever. End of Section 5. Recording by Maria Casper.